Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my ongoing series on gender, sexuality, and transition. I am honored to present to you today Ray Blanchard, who is quite a heavyweight in the area of sex research. He developed the typology about transsexualism, which has gained a lot of uh, traction and detraction uh, for him and then for people who have developed his theories after him, namely Michael Bailey and Alice Drager and Anne Lawrence. This interview itself is more along the lines of the interviews that I've done with Dr. James Cantor and Dr. Michael Bailey, which goes to say it's more scientifically based, it's more research-based, and it's not so much a narrative-based uh, you know, view on this topic that I'm covering. All that said, here's Ray Blanchard. Were you always kind of scientifically minded then, growing up and when you were involved in education, or how did you end up getting into this career? Well, I I entered uh, uni- uh, my undergraduate university as a psychology major, so I guess I had decided on psychology pretty early on. So that my BA was in psychology and my PhD was in psychology. I was certainly not interested in sex research. That never crossed my mind. I mean, it literally, for one second, never crossed my mind to study human sexuality or animal sexuality, that matter, until I was already past my postdoc and into my first job. What was it about psychology that interested you or that you found yourself good at? I don't know if I was ever especially good at sex at psychology. I don't think I was much of a psychologist. I mean, being a psychologist is to some extent a matter of attitude rather than specific mastery of a content area. Hmm. And I don't know that I had the right attitude. Uh, I don't think I'm the same as most university-based college instructor-type psychologists. They always seem to be somehow on a slightly different wavelength than I am. You're speaking about professors of psychology as opposed to psychologists that sit in a room and try to help people out? Yeah, I'm talking about, well, no, pretty much both. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I could do clinical work. I have done clinical work, but there's something about the feel the feel of most psychologists that's a bit different from from me. Well, then why did you progress through psychology to like a terminal degree? Lack of imagination. Huh. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I think you're being humble. (laughs) Uh, No, not really. I I, I think it wasn't until I uh, discovered uh, the possibility of doing research in human sexuality that I really felt comfortable and felt that there was something that I could do and that made sense to me. Well, what was different between uh, sexuality and psychology that that you fit better into, or the study of sexuality? I guess the study of human sexuality never it was n- never lent itself to one specific ideological approach, right? I mean, there were always clearly 
Oh, I shouldn't say clearly, but it, it, people who do serious uh, sexological research are, are aware of biological findings, are certainly aware of the fact that environment has to have some effect on somebody's uh, completed sexual uh, preferences. Uh, I think it, that sex, that uh, clinical sexology draws on a variety of disciplines, and so I don't think it it has one uh, dominant ideological cast to it or or feeling to it. Hmm. Even even now, do you think that it's uh, maintained its interdisciplinary, inter ideological uh, form? I, I think it has to a larger extent than. You know, let's say sociology or, hmm. you know, others or, or social psychology. I think, yeah, uh, when you're dealing with real life patients and you actually see real life patients, uh, I think it's hard to maintain um, a, com- a completely abstract theoretical concept of human sexual behavior when you're dealing with people who actually are there because of their sexual behavior, often problematic sexual behavior. This might be a bad question, but why do you think that human beings have such a broad range of sexuality? It seems like most animals just kind of do it, but somehow human beings have all these different extra wiring going on, or preferences. Well, sexuality in animals, or lower animals, I should say, is tied to things like pheromones, uh, you know, dogs and cats smell a female that's in heat, or I don't know if smell is the right word to use for a pheromone because it's not necessarily quite the same uh, set of receptors. Um, or, or other animals look for very specific behaviors in a potential copulatory partner or some specific marking that distinguishes females from males or females that are receptive. In human beings, uh, I'm not. I don't think all of this is gone by any means, but a lot of it has somehow migrated to to other parts of the brain. And uh, the consequence of that, the one consequence of it, is that human beings are not tied to responding reflexively to sexual stimuli in other people. But on the other hand, this has left them vulnerable to various parts of the developmental sequence uh, departing from one that leads to reproduction. Hmm. So that's interesting. So in your findings, are do we have like an innate uh, sexuality that we're born with and then that develops into what you said, a completed sexuality and that extension of development can take on various forms and hiccups can happen and people can get stuck in, in different sorts of developmental processes. I, I think it's a, it's unquestionable that there are a lot of human sexuality is innate. I mean, I don't think it's an accident that 97% of people end up heterosexual. And I don't think it's the result of socialization. I don't think that people start telling kids at a young age whom they should be sexually attracted to. People barely speak about sexuality to young children. So I think there is something about the stimulus properties of males and females that is picked up uh, in some automatic way and helps to form uh, the heterosexuality and attraction to adults. That's characteristic of most people. Hmm. On the other hand, there have to be 
uh, aspects of human learning because nobody can be born, for example, with a specific fetish for pantyhose. Pantyhose did not exist, um, you know, out on the savannas where yeah. humans were evolving uh, and learning to walk on two feet. So, of course, there is also some learning involved. Hmm. And so what about morality or the social aspects of kind of uh, shuffling people towards certain sorts of sexual behaviors? And specifically in doing sex research, uh, it seems like there's kind of a, a wider gray area between the is and the ought. And how did your own views of sexuality as like a, kind of a moral thing to a biological thing change and develop? as you studied it? I don't think it was ever difficult for me to distinguish between uh, scientific questions on the one hand and what you call moral questions, which I would say basically shades into clinical questions on the other. It just wasn't a difficulty for me. I understood at some simple level that these are different frames of mind and it didn't give me terrible problems. Hmm. So when, when studying something uh, very difficult for, let's say, society at large to kind of get their heads around or to swallow, uh, quote unquote, such as like pedophilia, uh, that there's a lot of uh, moral uh, and criminal uh, and justice kind of uh, weight put on that, sort, that specific behavior. And when you're treating it clinically, you have to let go of all that. Right. You have to just look at it as a, an emergent property of the human. I, I think that um, when you're dealing clinically with something like pedophilia, uh, you just simply have to accept the fact that it's society's collective wisdom that people having sex with children is not a good idea. Uh, which I agree with. Uh, I, I think it's irrelevant whether the odd child says uh, it did no harm to me because the fact is for the majority of children, it's probably a bad thing. Uh, and you just have to separate that from questions about, well, is pedophilia caused by um, a particular kind of intrauterine uh event or is it caused by genes or whatever and you just have to say these are these are two separate questions how something comes about at a biological or even at a learning level is a completely separate question from whether this is harmful to the to society or harmful to the individual themselves mm -hmm. and how does how do you see clinical research like having an effect or how what would you hope it would have an effect on societal discourse or let's say the criminal justice system with regards to treatment or specifically with pedophilia? Um, well, I think these things do interact to some extent with regard to treatment decisions. I mean, if, if you believe that the etiology of pedophilia is 100% accounted for by things like um, somebody doesn't have the self-confidence to approach adults sexually, so they approach children. Mm -hmm. If you have ideas like this, you're going to have you're going to favor different approaches to to treating pedophilia than somebody who believes that pedophilia is probably unchangeable and inborn, and the best treatment approach is simply to help the person control themselves. Mm -hmm. I want to switch. Uh 
switch lanes a little bit um, and get into the gender discussion. And can can you outline like your perception on the relationship between sex, sexuality, and gender? And are they distinct? Are they do they flow right into each other? Uh, I, you know the dogma, which has uh, been favored by a lot of people for various reasons for a long time, is that sex, sexuality—let's use that word—is that sexuality and gender identity are completely sep- separate things. My point is that yes, you could define them and specifically uh, discriminate between what has to do with gender identity and what has to do with sexuality, but to act like these things are completely unrelated, uncorrelated entities is nonsense. Um, Gender identity disorders are almost always or always either preceded or accompanied by some anomaly in erotic preferences. That is not the same thing as saying that gender identity is sexuality, but it's saying there is some correlation in the real world between anomalous erotic preferences and anomalous gender identity. How would you define anomalous with regards to sexuality? And how would I define anomalous? Well, you know, since I was an undergraduate, abnormal has been a bad word. Yeah, you know, right. you know. <laughs> so I've 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 found various uh, euphemisms, and uh, my mentor Kurt Freund used to say anomalous. That was his his way of getting around it. Um, that's why I say anomalous, okay. atypical, whatever you want. You know, we so, all know what we're talking about, but we're not allowed to say certain words to refer to it. Well, because they automatically have a negative cast or can be construed as negative. If it's not normal or if it's not typical, that means that it's uh, strange or weird or harmful, I guess, is the undercurrent of that. Uh, yeah, bad, dirty, sinful. Yeah. I mean, of course, everybody's commented on the fact that these euphemisms only last for so long, and then they themselves become dirty words, and then you have to find a new euphemism. So it's it's a treadmill that never ends. But, um, you know, I, I usually go for anomalous if I have to say something atypical sometimes if I'm really worried about a reviewer getting snarky. Yeah. So you're saying that that, um, gender expression is usually tied to a a sexuality in some way, or like they have a, they arise at the same time? Is that what you're saying? There is some connection. I don't think we always know. We don't know what the sequence, precise sequence is, what the precise relationship is, but there's a relationship. Mm -hmm. Like with the concept that you developed, or the word, I guess, that you developed, autogynephilia, um, and you use that as a typological way of, I guess, describing or looking at or or talking about a specific sort of gender uh, identity which wants to change gender. The problem with I see that people have with the term autogynephilia is that it seems like they feel like you're reducing their gender, their identity, and all that's tied to their identity into a sexual fetish. 
In my writings, I never said that. I've explicitly said the opposite. People who have the impression of work that you're describing, all I can say is I can't take responsibility for the distortions of my work that occur in internet echo chambers. I've been really, really, really clear in what I wrote, and there isn't anything more I can do than that. I just want to talk about that kind of topic, your typology of, uh, I guess, the, the transgender uh, male specifically is what you researched or kind of what you developed that term to describe. Yeah. Are there only those two categories? I, I know there's not, but there's the homosexual transsexual that is the, uh, I guess, the homosexual male that's so feminine that it would just make more sense for them to fit into the world as a woman. And then there's the autogynophilac, the autogynophilac. I was just stuck. Brit would say autogynophiliac. I just say autogynophilic. The autogynophile who uh, wants to be a woman because that satisfies uh, some sort of perception of themselves that that is basically tied to sexuality or even uh, a non-erotic kind of uh, romantic uh, drive or reflection. Um, I've spoken with several um, male trans women who describe a a loathing or a very uh, disgust reflex with their masculine body. Um, have you looked into that, or is there room for that in, in that typology? Like, a, like an auto-androphobe kind of thing? Well, there are some uh, male-to-female transsexuals who have extreme aversion to their penis and testes. Um, I've even seen some who castrated themselves, not many, uh, but I have seen patients who castrated themselves. So yeah, some have an extreme loathing of their male genitals and some don't. Okay. Some just would rather have a vagina. Some don't care that much whether what they have down there. Uh, but yes, some have an extreme loathing of their genitals and some of them, it was not rare, uh, would have complicated ways of masturbating that did not involve actually touching their penis. Mm-hmm. The the what what's happened with uh, the trans the trans uh, I guess discussion or the trans um, movement or sector of society is that it's seen a lot of growth both in the public eye and, as well as it, it seems like there's a, a rapid um, expansion of people who are identifying as trans and there's a lot of. Uh, stuff that that's not tied to sexuality that has more to do with like gender theory and queer theory and all these uh different kind of societal structures do you have any uh have you seen what's your position on on watching that and seeing that uh, kind of develop in the public eye i think they're probably contributing to the phenomenon you're talking about one are the the uh, teenagers that lisa littman uh, referred to as having rapid onset gender dysphoria so you have one group of these people who who are contributing to the swelling numbers who may have personality disorders or some kind of psychiatric vulnerability to start with and who then uh, decide they're gender dysphoric from going online or being in a peer group in which everybody becomes trans. There is that contingent. I think there probably is another contingent of adults who 30 years ago, 40 years ago, might have just remained as occasional cross-dressers with or without some degree of gender dysphoria. But what gender dysphoria they had, they might have just stifled um, on the view that 
you know, I want to keep my wife. I want to keep my kids. I don't want to rock the boat. So uh, I'm going to continue living as a male. And some of them might go to work with uh, panties or a brassiere underneath their male clothes. But one way or another, they try to keep a lid on it, tried to keep a lid on it back in the day. Now there's like much less incentive to live that way because, you know, quote unquote, coming out as trans is celebrated and no longer a cause for dismay. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the other subpopulation are people who would have just lived with it, but now are uh, coming out and, you know, celebrating gender dysphoria. I've had a couple of guests on recently uh, working on this series that take a very strong stance against gender dysphoria and even say that it doesn't really exist. Gender dysphoria is uh, an, a primarily an emotion, or let's say it's an emotion accompanied by cognitions that don't square up with reality. So it's a patients describe it as a feeling that they actually are the opposite sex. And I think that a persistent, strong feeling that one is actually belongs to the opposite sex is almost inevitably accompanied by unhappiness with being the sex that one is. It's undeniable that there are many people who feel this. What do you do about gender dysphoria? What do you do about different grades or degrees of severity of gender dysphoria? I think that's the issue. And it, it seems like because the issue has become so um, politicized, the medical establishment, the psychological establishment has taken on a very strong affirmative stance. And it seems like they don't even have the tools or want to develop a toolkit on how to distinguish between different uh, levels of severity of gender dysphoria and then levels of, of dealing with that. What have you done that, that could offer like a more gradiated uh, stance towards what gender dysphoria is and how people have uh, experienced it and, and can deal with it? Well, back in the day when I was doing research on uh, the outcome of sex reassignment surgery or the outcome of getting hormones, the only patients who were presenting or the, the main group of patients who were presenting to the clinic I worked at were either had definitely decided on sex reassignment surgery or else um, they were exploring it. So they weren't the full population that you see now, which includes patients who whose whose goal is to live as males, for example, but keep their penis and testes. That would have been a very rare presentation at the clinic I worked at. So you know, we saw a particular segment of the gender dysphoric population. Your research is a little bit dated with regards to the current situation, not to use the word outbreak, but the the swelling of the number of people who are rethinking gender or rethinking gender expression. What do you see as the uh, direction that the psychological or the the sexology establishment is going with regards to uh, gender dysphoria? The affirmative crew basically don't do any research on typology you know they they have an ideological objection to typological research and they don't do typological research and although they might be very vocal in criticizing my typological research they don't propose anything to replace it Hmm. why do you think that there's a resistance to typological research and Uh, why do you think it's important for typological research to well i think typological okay so what why is there let's let's start with why is there resistance to typological research 
I think uh, it has to do with wanting to define transsexualism as in terms of gender identity rather than in terms of gender dysphoria. If you define transsexualism as extreme gender dysphoria, then there's no such thing as a true transsexual, a real transsexual. If if you're gender dysphoric enough that you want your penis and testes replaced by a neo-vagina, you're a transsexual as far as I'm concerned. They don't want to define transsexualism that way. They want to define it in terms of gender identity. And if you define it that way, then that opens the question, okay, who wh- you start a competition of who's the who's the best what man is the best woman okay hmm. and uh, a lot of transsexuals don't want to get into a competition of what man is the best woman what man started earliest you know so so typological research is kind of a no go zone because they don't want to open that hierarchical uh, thing which would end up with the conclusion that well the homosexual transsexuals were more conspicuously feminine at a younger age than the autogynophilic transsexuals mm-hmm. and since the autogynophilic transsexuals are probably the majority of activists um, they're the ones who would have the most motivation not to want to have typological questions asked and without those typological questions asked, how can therapy, what, what's the consequence for therapy without that set of uh, tools? Well, I guess the honest answer I would have to give you is what therapy? I mean, patients come in and, and they're uh, approved for sex reassignment on the basis of what I would consider uh, more lenient criteria than in my day. Uh, I don't know how much psychotherapy is aimed at helping people to uh, resolve their gender dysphoria or learn to live with it. I would say probably very little therapy. So, you know, when it comes to adults, you know, I would say there's probably so little psychotherapy going on that's aimed at anything other than uh, we'll get here, we're working for your ticket to the surgeon's office that is almost not worth speculating about. I think that, uh, from my standpoint, typological distinctions were very important in other areas of research I was doing. One of the areas of research, well, let me speak more generally first. It it might well be that um, the etiology of, of sexual attraction to one's own biological sex is the same in homosexual transsexuals and in ordinary gay men. So if you have that hypothesis, then you might, for example, do a pedigree study and see are homosexual transsexuals coming from the same families that are producing ordinary homosexuals. Hmm. This kind of question can be askable if you treat transsexualism as um, some kind of monolithic entity uh, with meaningful distinctions among, among transsexuals. Mm-hmm. Without that framework, you can't start asking questions, you, then you can't like actually do research. Um, but then what we're going to end up having is a bunch of research done on people who were just affirmed. And then, well, do you expect that there's going to be a variety of outcomes in uh, this complete affirmation? Like if everybody's affirmed, then what do you see the outcome of that being in, in the long term? 
I, first place, if everybody's affirmed, I don't see how there could possibly any be any outcome except a larger proportion of cases regretting surgery than in the situation where there's um, a lot of gatekeeping and prior screening. When I worked at a gender identity clinic, our criterion was that the patient had to live for two years as the opposite sex, working in the opposite sex role, or they had to be attending school as the opposite sex, or uh, if they were retired and elderly, they had to be doing some bona fide charity work in the opposite sex role. And it was the patient's responsibility to provide us with documentation that showed they were doing these things and actually making it in real life in the opposite sex role. So a patient couldn't you know, stay home and order pizza delivery for two years and say, well, I've been living as the opposite sex. Hmm. I think that that kind of screening, which in contemporary standards would be considered extreme, is going to get is going to eliminate or reduce the number of cases who regret surgery after having had it. It can, in fact, 100% eliminate cases who regretted surgery afterwards, reduce the number of such cases down to a few percent. And why do you think that that gatekeeping has been taken away and even actively suppressed? Well, the patients, of course, never wanted it. Okay. To the extent that they commented on it at all, it, it usually was positive, like, I'm really glad I went through that. Uh, but there were... Um, you know, there were always going to be patients who felt, well, it's my body, I can do with it what I want, and who resented and would, would still resent any kind of gatekeeping as an intrusion into their their personal prerogatives. Mm-hmm. So the patients, uh, the patients is one thing, but isn't it the responsibility of the medical establishment to uh, to take into account more than just the patient's will with regards to an issue? Well, you would think so, and um, I'm not sure in a in a malpractice action. I mean, it, it seems to me in a malpractice action, the patient's lawyer could always argue to a psychiatrist, "You should have known that this patient was going to be unhappy after surgery, and you were at fault for not counseling them in that direction." And I think there have been some malpractice actions in that direction. Um, I don't recall how they've turned out, mm-hmm. and but we might be in for a, a bunch of a mm-hmm. bunch of them in the future, and we'll see how they turn out. You know, a psychiatrist saying, well, that's what the patient wanted uh, is not going to cut it in in a malpractice action if there's money at stake and so on. Hmm. And do you think that there'll be any water for them if they say that they were pressured into it by the establishment, like the APA or the various uh, lobbying groups uh, pressured the psychologists? Or like the the best practices have been, were changed to just be affirmative only? Can they use that as a shield from malpractice? Maybe, but you know, once you're in court, everything goes. Just saying, well, this is what WPATH suggests, uh, it isn't going to isn't going to get you out of trouble. You know, um, there's always a way. There's always some way to make an argument that uh, you know, yeah, this might be the standards of care for a transsexual, but you should have known that your patient wasn't a transsexual. 
there's always an argument that could be made. How does one know, how does one self-diagnose if changing their gender is going to be the way to deal with their dysphoria? Well, that was pretty much the purpose of the two-year real-life test. Hmm. Uh, I mean, my philosophy, I don't know to what extent it was articulated in this in the same way by other, other clinicians, but my philosophy is, look, I'm a psychologist, not a seer or a prophet. Uh, you know, uh, how do I know in, in 100% of cases how the patient is going to feel two years down the road? The real-life test to a large extent obviated this need for a psychologist to pretend that he or she can predict the future hmm. because the real life test screened out patients who really didn't want it that was the beauty of it you didn't have to become you know a magician who can see 2 years into the future who can see 10 years into the future that's an interesting point because that's compounded even more so with child trans transition, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, the people who approve, uh, who are in favor of uh, transition in children, who are in favor of early medical interventions, whether it's puberty preventing medications, whether it's testosterone for young girls, um, whether it's surgical procedures carried out on kids as young as 16. Um, I think they all believe that they that they know they know what's going to happen to this person in 10 years or 20 years these people believe they know hmm. that they can see into somebody's soul and they know how things are going to be i'm not that good hmm. <laughs> do, do you know what the um what the effects of puberty blockers are do we do we have the research uh of what happens when we block somebody's puberty or change their gender mid-development there's a lot of emerging research on it. Uh, I'm not the right person to ask okay. about it because I'm not an endocrinologist and I don't try to memorize all of the all yeah. of the side effects. Yeah. There is one thing I'll say about a hormone treatment in kids, and it has to do with testosterone. Uh, it's becoming more and more common to give testosterone to teenage girls. Now, the thing about testosterone is that when you give a biological female testosterone, the vocal cords thicken and the pitch of the voice drops. This is exactly the same as what happens in a biological male when they get a surge of testosterone at puberty. It's the same process. This is what testosterone does. It thickens the vocal cords and the pitch of your voice drops. And that's irreversible. If you stop taking testosterone, that your your vocal pitch does not go back to the female range. If you castrate an adult male, he does not go. He does not acquire a female voice. My point with this long song and dance is, when you give testosterone to a biological female, you're doing something that can be thought of as almost verging on a surgical-like procedure because you're altering a part of the body permanently and you're altering a part of the body that is very fundamental to signaling to other people what sex you are. Hmm. So a biological teenage girl who gets testosterone and then decides three years later that she's going to go back to living as a female is going to have a voice that's going to have her taken for a male on the phone 
for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Some of your research uh, that you shared with me was about uh, homosexuality uh, rising in women who've given birth to uh, males before. Yeah, I, I had I, I, for about 25 years, I was doing research on birth order and sexual orientation. There had been an old, old literature that kind of suggested that gay men had higher birth orders uh, than straight men. And there was another old literature that suggested that gay men had a higher proportion of brothers than straight men. To make a long story short, my research showed that these two phenomena were two different sides of the same coin. Gay men have more older brothers than straight men. Therefore, they have more older siblings and they have more brothers. But the two phenomena reduced down to one phenomenon, which is that uh, gay men have more older brothers. And we finally, after many, many years of the epidemiological research, did one study looking at antibodies in the blood of mothers of adult gay and straight men. And we did, we looked at antibodies to two antigens and we did find that one of them uh, had higher levels in the mothers of sons who turned out gay. What does that lead uh, you to think about what it is that triggers homosexuality in the brain? Well, I want to make two points about it. One is that Although I firmly, everybody who knows about, who's who's taken any interest in the genetics of homosexuality in males realizes two things. Uh, Number one is there is some genetic influence. And number two, it's not 100%. So I think that means we have to look for other kinds of influences. And the possibility of prenatal maternal immune responses is uh, one of those influences that can uh, help fill in the gap of what's causing all of these other cases of Hmm. homosexuality in males. Hmm. So uh, I I just wonder if there's like a, if that's an evolutionary response or just somehow a way that the female body operates in producing children. Before I answer that, you're asking basically, is there an adaptive function to it? So I'll answer that second. First, I want to, because you had asked me and I hadn't gotten around to answering how this would affect the brain. You have to ask yourself, why are there male specific molecules on the surfaces of neurons in male brains that are not present on the surfaces of neurons in female brains. And it seems reasonable to speculate that these molecules are on the surface of brain cells in males because they have some function in the development of male typical behavior. Male typical behavior here including wanting to copulate with females. Mm -hmm. Okay? So there's nothing particularly strange about saying, well, uh, an antibody to these molecules, which would, in essence, take them out, uh, you know, uh, neutralize them, would then uh, be removing one of the one of the neurodevelopmental factors that tends to make you end up heterosexual. Hmm. You know, you would just be pasting over one of those signs that says you're going to like females as soon as you figure out which ones they are. Yeah. Huh. Now I forgot the other question. I was uh, which is about adaptive uh, and adaptive function. Oh, yeah. I've been asked this so many times yeah. and pressured, in fact, to come up with an adaptive explanation. Why should this, the, you know, well, how is this helping the human race as a whole? Yeah. And I've. From time to time, I've thrown some BS into discussion sections of my articles. But the reality is, I don't know how it's adaptive. I don't know whether it's adaptive. 
-hmm. I think I did enough. And I don't feel that I'm obliged to come up with some adaptive function um, for a phenomenon that has been demonstrated with a hell of a lot of uh, epidemiological data and confirmed in the one lab study that looked at it. I just don't know if it's adaptive. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Sometimes stuff just happens. <laughs> How have you seen the attitudes towards sexuality change for the better in during your career and just during your lifetime? Well, you know, my lifetime includes the, the period during which the really big pre press for gay marriage was carried out by gay rights organizations and that drive was successful. Most jurisdictions in the Western world now, I believe, have uh, legal marriage for gays. So that's an enormous hmm. change for uh, from the situation when I was young when this, this would have been thought of as a, a bizarre notion. Now it's uh, taken for granted. Hmm. I think that biological research played into that. It shouldn't have, at some theoretical level, it shouldn't have mattered how exactly people came to be gay or lesbian uh, with regard to the question of was it reasonable to allow them to marry. Hmm. But in practice, it did become part of legislators and the public's assessment of whether gay marriage was a reasonable ask. In the field of sexology, what's the most exciting front right now that you see that's being developed or the questions that you think are the most interesting? I, I believe that science is driven to a large extent by instrumentation, by what what lab instruments, what what kinds of things are available to ask questions. You know, biology was enormously changed by the microscope. Uh, astronomy was enormously changed by the telescope. Now the, the hot new tool for, well, it's no longer new, but the, the still hot tool in biology is DNA analysis. Mm -hmm. And so I think that things like DNA, uh, potential improvements in uh, brain imaging that allow scientists to look at smaller and smaller areas of the brain, I think that these are going to be the things that drive real progress in research on human sexuality and its variations, uh, and that that's where it's going to come from. So I'm, I'm most interested, of course, in uh, biological research. Mm. You know, research on learning effects on human sexuality have had well over 100 years to make their case, and I don't think they've come up with an enormous amount. What do you mean by that learning effects, then just the exposure to the environment? Uh, yeah, or not necessarily that, but like the idea that uh, a fetish can result. Uh, this was an idea that went back to uh, Alfred Binet, the guy who invented the IQ test. He first introduced the idea that a fetish results uh, when somebody is exposed to something that elicits a strong emotional response. For example, uh, a child for the first time seeing a, uh, a person with an amputated leg, that uh, an accidental shock, he called it, somehow becomes conditioned with or prompts their first sexual response. And so somebody becomes a, a stump fetishist because of an adventitious 
pairing of strong, a strong emotional reaction uh, to sexuality. So I, I think to that, I, I think there is something to that. I, I do believe there is something to that. But I think when people talk about sexuality in these vague social psychology terms, uh, you know, as if somehow uh, people would be randomly heterosexual or homosexual if they weren't schooled to prefer one or the other. I think this is nonsense. And, and in 150 years, where's the data for this, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so you put your bets on biology and the tools that have been developed for it. Yeah, with the proviso, as I said, that clearly some aspects of human sexual preference are learned, that that's undeniable. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody is born uh, uh, waiting to find a stump in the external environment to focus their erotic, uh, you know, an amputation. Nobody is born with a mental, a mental image somewhere embedded in their brain cells of a, of a uh, of an amputation stump that they're going to be sexually attracted to hmm. there has to be some learning there hmm. and what are your thoughts on the way that the internet is uh, shaping or will shape uh, sexuality in young people and developing people well as people have pointed out every communications tool in human history the printing press the, the invention of movies, uh, every every communications tool has been used for people to promulgate pornography and for making uh, sexual contacts. So, of course, the Internet is going to have some effect on human sexuality. Um, I, I think a, a bigger question is, is the Internet going to foster more advances in the exchange of information or more advances in the exchange of misinformation. That, for me, is the big unknown. Hmm. And what are your thoughts on how we pull the pendulum towards information and away from misinformation? Gee, that's a good question. I I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I'm not sure anybody knows the answer to that i mean people are are trying are now making vague noises about regulating the big social media companies to somehow uh have some quality content control but that's going to be a very heavy slog Hmm. Mm -hmm. with probably a lot of unintended consequences in its own right yes one one other question. Why is there so much research into males and uh, male sexuality? And it seems like there's not a lot in female. Or is that just a misconception on my part? I think it's probably a misconception. I think there is as much research on female sexuality as there is on males. Uh, in, in one regard, male sexuality is easier to research than female sexuality. In the thalometric testing, where you directly measure penile blood volume mm. while you show a man um, a series of uh, different potentially sexually arousing stimuli, that kind of technique works pretty well in males. Uh, in fact, it works well enough that it's uh, an assistance in diagnosing child molesters who might or might not be actual pedophiles. So that kind of approach works well in females. It doesn't work, uh, works well in males, sorry. The analogous procedures don't work at all in females, hmm. or they don't work in the sense that uh, heterosexual women don't respond differentially to images of women and men. Hmm. Uh, 
and and so their their be women's behavior in the laboratory does not correspond very well to their sexual preferences or their sexual behavior in real life hmm. whereas men's sexual performance in the laboratory corresponds pretty well with their stated preferences and their actual sexual behavior why do you think that is what is it about the male sexuality that's uh, so obvious i mean other than just like the the body parts outside but um well, the, the, the instrumentation for females tried to look at the analogous thing of, okay. of blood volume, that you couldn't do it by putting a device over or around the vulva, but yeah. there are devices where you shine a light into uh, tissue lining the vagina, and the amount of light reflected back from that tissue is, is a reasonable index of how much uh, blood engorgement there is in those tissues. So it's not... It's not uh, an instrumentation issue. Oh, and by the way, this has been carried out on post-operative male-to-female transsexuals hmm. using the same apparatus that you use on biological females. You know, these are post-op male-to-females. They don't have a penis anymore. You're now using the same technique of shining a light into uh, the inside of the vagina and measuring amount of light reflected back. And when you look at the results... They still look like males, you hmm. know. They're what they what they say they prefer is what they get engorgement to. So the difference between males and females in the lab is not just an artifact of of the tissues available to you for measurement. It's something profound about the way females and males respond differently. Hmm. One of my students, Meredith Chivers, had the theory that. Um, when, uh, that perhaps female females respond with some kind of copulatory preparedness rate, uh, some kind of copulatory preparedness response to all sexual stimuli uh, as a way of protecting themselves in a rape situation to uh, minimize damage to vaginal tissue by having some degree of preparedness hmm. for penetration. So that what you see in females is not indicating so much uh, sexual attraction as it is indicating detection of a sexual uh, situation and responding to a potential hmm. uh, penetration, which could be damaging uh, without some degree of prior physiological preparation. Hmm. Uh, that's fascinating. And that theory holds water as far as you're concerned? Well, I think it's plausible. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. if it's correct or not. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> huh. So are you working on anything now? Uh, do you have like a book in the works or a, a grand uh, opera of sexuality, perhaps? No, no. I, I never wanted to write a book. I never did, except for a couple of edited books. Uh, I think I've... Uh, I think I've had my say at this point, and I'm, I'm pretty much prepared to... Uh, turn the topics that I've worked on over to other people.